0: Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 13, uh, reading verse 17, where uh, the writer to the Hebrews writes, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning for that would be of no advantage to you." And pray for us. And pray for us. Uh, What's uh, what's implied by the directions that we find here, that we are to obey and submit to our leaders? Well, I, I would say it implies that there's a form of government in the church, that there's a process of selecting those to whom you will submit and obey. Uh, That there is a delegating of authority uh, to uh, those who are put in the offices of leadership. That there's an assignment of tasks, you can see that here with the keeping watch over your souls, that's implying certain tasks are being given. In, In our case, we have elders who are concerned for the spiritual affairs. The deacons who are concerned for the material or physical concerns and the trustees who manage uh, the secular assets, and, and then you have the membership uh, who are being called uh, to obey and to submit to those leaders who fill the, the offices that make up the form of government and exercise the authority and are responsible for the tasks um, of the positions to which they have been elected. Now, we have, we have a message uh, that's certainly implied by keeping watch over your souls, that's what we're concerned about as a church. We're concerned about souls. That's why we preach the gospel every week in every service. We're concerned about the salvation of souls. We're concerned about the sanctification of sinners. So we have a message. We have, a, we have a, a mission. We are to go and to make disciples of all the nations, and we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, uh, and uh, we are to do so even to the end of the age and teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded you." Now, it's that message and mission that we'd rather talk about on most occasions. Uh, it's that, uh, they are, they are the, the themes that we find inspiring and moving and challenging and illuminating, uh, but there are also occasions when we need to talk about the structure of the church within which the message and the mission to spread that message functions because that structure is either going to facilitate or it's going to inhibit ministry. It's either going to provide stability or it's going to undermine it. It will either preserve the church for generations or contribute to the collapse of that ministry with the changes that, uh, that, um, that put pressure on the church uh, in the culture. So I want to remind ourselves of who we are this morning. We are the Independent Presbyterian Church. We have been here for nearly 270 years. We predate the United States of America. So who are we? Number one, we are an independent congregation. Now every time, I would say basically without exception that I speak anywhere outside of this church. And I'm introduced as the pastor of the Independent Presbyterian Church. What someone will say is, what is that? Because it's an oxymoron, uh, right? Uh, there, there, there's no such thing as an Independent Presbyterian Church. Just like a jumbo shrimp, right? You're either jumbo or you're a shrimp. It's like a grape nut. You're either a grape or you're a nut. There's no such thing as a grape nut. Okay, so an independent Presbyterian church, that's a contradiction in terms. Why? Because uh, because Presbyterian churches, by definition, have presbyteries and general assemblies. They have, this, uh, they have this system of gradated courts by which a policy is established and doctrines aff- affirmed and conflicts resolved. Uh, so that when you have a conflict at the local level, you appeal up to the Presbyterian. If uh, the conflict continues, you appeal up to the General Assembly. Uh, uh, So that's just just fundamental to Presbyterianism. In the early decades here, we were just simply called the Presbyterian Church of Savannah. How did we become an independent Presbyterian church? Well, it's something of a historical accident. 1755, a group of leaders of this congregation, congregation that had to have already existed. So when exactly the church started, we don't know. That is lost to history, as far as we know. But in 1755, they were organized sufficiently that they petitioned George I for land in order to erect a dissenting meeting house. Didn't call it a sanctuary, didn't call it a church, called it a meeting house. Um, for whom? Well, a dissenting meeting house would be for dissenters. Dissenting from what? Dissenting from the Act of Uniformity of 1662 uh, and the Church of England to which at one time all uh, British subjects were required to belong. And so they wanted a a piece of land in order to put up a, a dissenting meeting house for basically for Presbyterians and Congregationalists and the odd Baptists who might be around uh, in order for them to have a place a place by of worship. And they were further identified as professors of the doctrines of the Church of Scotland, namely, and this is all spelled out, the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechism. So these dissenters are Calvinists. They are paido baptists I'll tell you what they are. They are the same kind of people that the, that the Pilgrim Fathers were. The Pilgrim Fathers were Calvinists, Pado-Baptists. They believed in baptizing their uh, their infants. They had a local government that was representative. Uh, that is, uh, leadership was provided by elders who were chosen by uh, the congregation. So we were we are like that group of early settlers in New England. The Pilgrim Fathers. The Pilgrim Fathers were independent Presbyterians. To put it to put it. Uh, you know, in a way that's historically accurate. Well, 70 years later, around 1825, uh, a second Presbyterian church was formed in Savannah. And there was some impetus then to form a presbytery. And that was resisted by this congregation. Why? Well, because uh, then and at other times we had congregational ministers uh, because there was this uh, this close association between Congregationalists and Presbyterians, they were virtually identical, so there was no enthusiasm for a presbytery amongst uh, congregational congregationally um, you know biased uh, ministers but the big I think the main reason why was the church was uh, accustomed to autonomy at that point uh, they'd been independent for seventy years they hadn 't been accountable to anyone else, and they weren 't about to surrender their Um, their autonomy, their ability to control their own affairs to some other body that would sit over them. And so what developed was something of a hybrid. What we have today, your ministers are Presbyterians. Uh, We are members of the Savannah River Presbytery of the PCA. We believe in connectionalism. We believe in Presbyterian form of church government We might even privately refer to the scourge of independency, but we have been uh, permitted gladly to labor what's called out of bounds. We're not within the presbytery itself, as it were. We're not a congregation of the presbytery, but like our predecessors for the nearly 270 years, we are members of the presbytery while the church is not. So, What are we? We're independent. We're not part of a denomination. Well, in what sense are we Presbyterian? All right, so this is the way we typically describe these things. Our ministers are Presbyterian. That counts for something. Two, our doctrines are Presbyterian. I've just noted them. We subscribe. We've subscribed for nearly 270 years to the Westminster Confession, larger, shorter catechisms. We believe they provide an accurate accounting of, summary of, comprehensive rendering of what the Bible teaches across the whole range of theological subjects, from A to Z. It's the most complete doctrinal statement uh, ever formulated by Protestants. Our local government then, thirdly, is Presbyterian. We follow Acts 6, 1 through 7. Our people choose their leaders. We have a representative form of government, so we have a session in whom resides final authority in all matters of the church. After 260 years, that finally got resolved. If you happen to come across a copy of the an earlier Uh, historical account of the history of the church is called Holding Aloft the Torch. There is a chapter committed to the conflict between the trustees and the elders. You read that chapter, you just weep and gnash your teeth at the ongoing conflict for basically 260 years, the battle over who has the authority to do what in the church. And then finally, about 10 years ago, we finally got that all worked out. We finally got it resolved something that seemed beyond resolution for 260 years, we got that worked out. Final authority in everything belongs to the session. That's a very important principle to work out. We, we know churches that have blown up over, for example, the issue of the deacons versus the elders, where the deacons thought of themselves as having their own authority, having a virtually autonomy and uh, refused to submit to the direction uh, of the the deacons of the church. No, that's clear now in in this church as it always should have been. So, we have elders, we have deacons. What's their job? They assist the elders. We go back to Acts 6, 1 through 7 again, which we believe provides a foundational text for deacons. What are deacons doing? They are organizing the service of the widows of the church. It's. it wouldn't be accurate to say they're waiting on tables, but, but I think it creates an image that I think is actually a helpful one. They're responsible for the distribution to poor and needy people. They're responsible to facilitate the services of the church. They're responsible for the material upkeep of our buildings and our, and our vehicles. They are um, freeing the elders of the church to focus on things that are more strictly spiritual in nature. And so relieving them of of, of the responsibility for all those other matters when things are properly functioning, that's what they're doing so that the elders are able to focus on the the spiritual well-being of the congregation. And then there are trustees. And we ask them to manage the secular assets. Why? Once again, because we we don't want the elders being occupied with deciding where to invest the assets of the church there are others who, frankly, are more qualified than most of us who are elders. I'm a teaching elder. We have ruling elders. Uh, so we find, uh, we find men who are, who are uh, good at managing assets, uh, who are members of our church and who uh, understand our priorities and subscribe to our doctrines and so forth to take care of that. So as to relieve the elders, so again, they are able to focus on the spiritual matters, the spiritual health, the spiritual well-being of the, con- uh, of the congregation. They're able to give that their full-time attention. That's the point. Not every church has trustees. Not every church needs them. It's been in the, the wisdom of the church here for virtually centuries now. And, and you can see the wisdom of it. Let others handle that. Uh, so that uh, the elders and the deacons for that matter matter, uh, are able to do uh, their job. Well, what happens if there's a conflict in the church? Well, this is where we deviate from classic Presbyterianism. You don't appeal up to the Presbytery, you appeal down to the congregation. Did you know that if you don't like a decision that was made by the elder, you can run around the, in the congregation and gather 25 signatures and force a congregational meeting to deal with that issue. I beg you not to do that. However, I recognize that you have a right to do so. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's good that that's protected. Uh, so that because there's no appeal up, you can appeal down to the congregation and submit the matter to the vote of the congregation. So it's at that point that we we do, we do deviate. The important point here is that there is a process for determining policy, program, discipline, and whatever else comes before the church. I have a friend in the ministry who fought a two-year battle because there was not a process. Or or the process itself was abused. So it's something that was approved by the session and then approved by the congregation. That was then appealed up and appealed again and appealed again. And it caused all manner of hardship and, and, and distraction uh, within, within the congregation. This is what I'm saying, that yes we have a message and we have a mission, but we also have a structure and the structure is important. Why? So that we don't, we don't get ourselves all tangled up in eternal affairs and disputes. There is a process for dealing with things. It begins with uh, the election of the officers that then move to the session that's making decisions about uh, the program uh, and, the, and the policies. Uh, uh, and and uh, the doctrinal issues that, you, that the con- congregation faces. And then, if that is, is uh, un- unde- undesirable, there is a process. You can appeal to the congregation in, in, in our situation. Now, I want to, continuing as we speak of ourselves as Presbyterians, obey your leaders and submit to them. What does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you obey and submit like, a, like uh, you would command the obedience of an animal. Okay, we talk about animals obeying, but when, we, when we're using the word obey, we don't mean the same thing. When we're talking about congregations, they don't submit like a, like a dog submits. Um, we also uh, believe that uh, the wives are to submit to their husbands. Uh, but again, what do we mean? That, that the meaning of the word alters when you're dealing not with an animal but with another human being made in the same image of God and a co-heir, using the language of the apostle Peter, a co-heir of the grace of life, then submit to to your husbands. That takes on a a very important nuance because of the person with whom you're dealing, who is your equal which is not to deny that there isn't a a hierarchy of authority, but that person who is being called upon uh, to submit is an an equal, so so that the word has a a different meaning. And and that applies to the obedience and submission of the congregation. It's not slavish obedience. There's a process uh, so that the authority can be resisted. So I think it's fascinating as you go on in the verse where uh, the writer says, uh, having called the congregation to obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. I would say that applies to all elders and deacons, and for that matter, the trustees too. And ultimately, what we are concerned about is the spiritual well being of the church and the facilitating of the ministry of the church so that we are true to our message and that we are aggressive in carrying out our mission. As those who will give an account. So that's sobering. James says, let not many of you become teachers, because as such there will be a stricter judgment. You take on the responsibility, there will be a higher degree of accountability come judgment day. All right, then then this. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, that's a curiosity, isn't it? Why does he throw that in there? Well, I reckon he would throw that in there because that's a pretty typical situation. That's what I would guess. That often the leaders of the church are confronted with conflicts that cause them to groan and rob them of their joy. And he's adding... This uh, additional clause, that'd be no advantage to you. You grieve uh, the leaders of the church complaining about how they're leading or what they're deciding. And, and uh, you, what you're doing is upsetting the life of the church. That's not going to be an advantage to you. You're distracting them from their work. In the news right now, in fact, I was reading just this morning yet of another case of pastoral abuse. It's been in the news uh, prominently the last couple of years, and there are some egregious examples of pastoral abuse. Uh, it It tends, I think, in particular to happen in larger churches, but it can happen in every church. You have these celebrity pastors who build up vast congregations, and... The whole ministry rests upon him; he's something of a celebrity and 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 you know power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely, and so it all goes to his head and he begins to act like a little dictator in the church, and everyone's afraid to uh confront or contradict because were we to do so, he might leave, and we've got this twenty five million dollar building we've got to pay for, and what will we you know it's so. So everybody just uh, treats him with kid gloves, and he gets away with everything but murder. And so you have a, a formula that's ripe for abuse, uh, for pastoral dictators who throw their weight around, uh, who are accountable to no one, who have no peers, and, and, and rule the church with, a, with an iron fist. Okay, that's a reality. We recognize that. We recognize that that's a problem, I, th- I think particularly in free market driven religion like we have in the United States, I think that that we, we are we're ripe for that. celebrity pastors who um, for, for, for whom there's, n- there's no accountability, and the power corrupts them. okay, having said that, I reckon that for every a case of pastoral abuse, there are 10 cases of congregational abuses of pastors. In fact, I would say, it's all anecdotal, I don't have any scientific basis, I would say the ratio is about 100 to 1. I, 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 you know, Virtually every minister I know of is bruised and, and battered by abusing congregations. So I think that's why this is in here. So if you're trying to read between the lines, don't. I am, well, for the last 30 years, been treated wonderfully, better than I deserve by this congregation. So I'm not talking about me at all. I'm talking about my, my, um, my brethren in, in, in the ministry. Uh, I'm talking about my colleagues. I think the problem of churches that abuse pastors is a terrible problem driving men out of the ministry, good men, faithful men, godly men, driving them right out of the ministry. I think that's why that's there. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us. That's that's uh, what, what you're to do. And thankfully, for 270 years, we have had a structure in place here that has served us well in keeping the church faithful to its mission and faithful to its message. And then the third thing I want to say is that we are an independent Presbyterian church. Well, obviously, we're a church, you say. So why, what do you have to say about that? Well, I have this to say. We have a very limited job description. And I want to remind us of that in order to adjust our expectations. We are not a social organization, for example. Uh, we're, we're, we're not um, here to facilitate your social life. All right, now having said that, I want to repeat something that I say frequently and believe wholeheartedly, and that is if you go up and down the pews of this church, you will find member after member after member after member who knew no one in this congregation join this church, and the half-dozen best friends they have in all the world are members of this church. How did that happen? Well, they they started coming Sunday morning, Sunday night. They stayed for the meal. They went out to the service at Point Pleasant. They hung around. They got to know people. They were eating meals together, having cross-the-table conversations. And so friendships developed and fellowship matured. And now their best friends in all the world, the people upon whom they lean and look to, are members of this congregation. But we're not a social organization. We're not going to solve someone's Problem of loneliness. We're not going to solve that directly. We're not going to, uh, you know, if you're friendless, we're not going to be able to solve that directly. What we urge you to do is throw yourself into the life of the church, and you'll make all kinds of connections. So we're not a social organization. We're not a political organization. Our moral code brings us into conflict with the political drift of things in in our civilization. We recognize that. We have a moral code that is at odds with, that is with society, which is politically incorrect, which will get you canceled out there in, in, in the general public. Now, there are people that want us to be much more directly politically involved, which we will not do. To be specific, we will never invo- endorse a candidate, and we will never um, e- endorse a piece of legislation. Now, I say never. I mean, if Hitler were running for office, you know, maybe we'd, we'd you know, as Winston Churchill said, if, the, if Hitler invaded hell, he'd put in a good word for the devil in the House of Commons. So, I, you know, I don't want to be absolutely absolute about that, but basically we're not going to, we're going to avoid political engagement. We're going to settle for teaching Christians to be Christians, and hopefully their informed conscience will, will lead them to vote in, in ways that are, um, that are consistent with that. So yes, we do I- intersect with political issues, but we're not a political body. We don't have a political agenda. We don't endorse candidates and legislation. We have a limited job description. What is it? Worship and witness. That's about the extent of it, and that's about the extent of our competence. As soon as we wander outside of worship, uh, worship and witness, I think we're, we can do a pretty good job of Here's what we're, I'm just going to say we're competent. We're competent to have worship services. We are competent to study the Bible and teach the Bible. We're we're competent theologically. Uh, We're competent pastorally. These are the areas of our competence. We start getting outside of that, we will demonstrate our incompetence very quickly. We will fall flat on our face and make major mistakes. We're not a political organization. We do not have a political calling. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. We have a mission. What is it? It's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And it is a a winning program because Jesus says all authority in heaven and earth is mine. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That counts for something, that he has all authority and he promises to be with us. That means something about our outlook and our hope and our confidence as we move forward in mission. Back in Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. This is a winning program. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are are agents of protection, right? What, What Jesus is envisioning is an aggressive church on the offensive, not the defensive, with the gospel battering down the gates of hell. They will not prevail. They will fall. The citadels of evil will fall. So that means we're a part of the... The, the most successful and exciting program, institution that one could possibly ever be involved in. It's a limited job description in one sense, worship and witness. On the other hand, it's absolutely cosmic in its, in, in its, in, in its scale because it's, it's through the gospel. The simple proclamation of the simple gospel, the going uh, to the nations, the the baptizing them into the fellowship of the church, teaching all that Jesus commands, that is the way. It's not directly through political action. It's not directly through social activity, No, no, it's through the proclamation of the gospel that the gates of hell themselves get knocked down. and the powers of darkness are defeated, and the kingdom of God is established. This is the most important, most exciting, most successful organization with the most important tasks ever assigned to humanity. We're part of an institution that's 2,000 years old on a 2,000-year mission, the end of which will be every knee-bowing, and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father, as we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we love your church. We love everything about your church, flawed though it is. And oh, Lord, we pray that you will fulfill your promises, build your church. Break down the gates of hell. Exercise your authority. And be with us to the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.